The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, and we had an opportunity to look at this scripture about three weeks ago, and I didn't say all that I wanted to say about it at that time, and I think most of you know that I have a a great deal of difficulty deciding what to put in a message and what to leave out. There are so many things here that are important, uh, and I want to do the text justice, but at the same time, I know that we need to keep moving along, but there's just so much here to to talk about. I, I want to make sure that we don't leave out too much, but we get all that's intended here for us to learn. And, and I, I don't mean that I can exhaust every passage because I know that I can't, but this is a, a very important text. It's a crucial one because I think it's, it is very important for us to understand as much as we can of what took place in the last week of Jesus' life. Now, the gospel writers spend a great deal of time dealing with this one week. Here in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew spent 20 chapters talking about the first or talking about the 33 years of Jesus' life, and then he spends eight chapters just to talk about this one week. And so one-fourth of the Gospel of Matthew is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. Now, if you look at this scripture, uh, Matthew 21, verse number 12, we'll read down to verse number 17, if you'd stand with me as we read God's Word. Matthew slowed down to cover this last week carefully, so we want to do the same thing. Verse number 12, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. And said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. I do pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts to the message and help us, Lord, that we may understand something of this text that will help us In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Sometimes it just happens that I can do two completely different sermon series, one on Sunday mornings and one on Sunday night, and somehow the the subjects of those messages kind of meld together, and I find that we're talking about the very same things. On Sunday evening, uh, we've been talking about worship as it relates to the doctrine of the church. And as we look at this text in Matthew today, this is also a text about worship. Jesus went into the temple with the intention of purging the temple of the Jewish perversions of worship. 
Uh, what they had done was they had desecrated the holy name of God in the way that they worshipped in the temple. Now, you see, we worship God because of our salvation. We worship because of Jesus Christ. I mean, that is the only way that we know what to worship and how to worship rightly. We understand that by the Spirit of God who has come into us and shown us who we are to worship and how we are to worship. And the reason that more people don't worship God the way that they should is simply because they don't know Jesus Christ. If you wonder why people pass by our church on Sunday morning and pass by other good churches that are in the area and they never bother to stop in to see what we do, it's because they really don't understand who Jesus Christ is. They, they haven't met him. He hasn't come into their heart. And so they don't know what to worship or how to worship. You see, the knowledge of Christ is what changes you. It tells you what you're to do and who you are supposed to worship. None of us know that naturally. Now remember, Jesus talked to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and he told her, you don't know what you worship. And what he meant was she didn't know how to worship correctly because she had not yet met him. Now, that's what Jesus does in this text. He went into Jerusalem. This is the last week of his life, and he headed straight for the temple to deal with the perversion of worship. Uh, this is Monday of the last week. On Sunday, you remember, he had entered into Jerusalem to the cheers of the people. He rode in on a donkey while the people shouted praises and they said, Hosanna to the son of David. And when Jesus came into the temple on Monday, or came into the city rather, on Monday, he rode right up to the temple and he stopped there. And he didn't go into the temple. Now, we learn that, that sequence a little bit better as you look at it in the book of Mark. But Jesus didn't actually go into the temple on Monday, but he went up to it after the cheers of the people. He went up to the temple. He stopped there. Then he turned around, went back out of the city, over across the Mount of Olives to spend the night at Bethany. Now, on Monday morning, when he returned, all of the Sunday cheers were gone. The shouts of Hosanna were gone, and gone were the great crowds that welcomed him as the king. And as the activities of this week of Jesus' life progress, we find that as he gets more towards the end of the week, the cheers of the people are more and more distant and remote. And then finally, all of the goodwill was over, and the cheers had turned to contempt and hatred, and the crowd demanded that Jesus be crucified. But here we are, still early in the week, and Jesus went into the temple to clear it out. There were lots of bad stuff that was going on there. The house of God was polluted, and God will not live in a dirty house. Now, I want to take just a few minutes to, to catch you up from that last message. That's been three weeks ago, and it's not often that I separate two parts of a message by that much time, but it was necessary because... I thought there were some other things that we needed to talk about. But we're going to just go back and review for just a, a few minutes here and, and talk about these events, and then we'll continue with what uh, finishing up the events of this Monday. So first, in that last message, we talked about the pollution of the temple, just what was going on there that upset Jesus so much. Verse number 12 says, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seat of them that sold doves. 
This is the second time that Jesus did this at the temple. John records that in the beginning of his ministry, Jesus went into the temple and he did the same thing that we see here. And he set the tone at the very beginning of his ministry where he would declare the the holiness of God and that Israel was no longer holy in their worship of him. And during those three years of his personal ministry, after he'd purged the temple the first time, Jesus told what God expected of them, and he showed them how that God truly must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And in our study of his ministry over these many, many months and years, how many times have we seen that Jesus quoted the commandments and how that he was determined to show the true intent of God's law? Now, there is something that you need to very clearly understand, that worship is also a part of God's commandments. God has commanded us to worship him. And you you may not be aware of this, but you can't worship God until you actually become obedient to what he's told you to do. You have to be obedient to God's commands. And so you can't go out and live all week long in the way that you want to live, doing the things that you want to do, ignoring God's commandments, and then come to church on a Sunday morning and expect that you can sit down here and sing songs and get your worship fixed, so to speak, and God is all right with you, that you've satisfied the requirement of worship. It can't be done. It simply cannot be done. Obedience to God is always behind true, acceptable worship. Now remember that when Jesus went to the temple, that he did not go into the temple proper. I mean, he never went into that actual building that is called the temple. And that's because only the priests could go there. No Jewish men were allowed to go into the temple itself. I mean, actually to go in was, was a high crime. That was sacrilege. That was a, a terrible offense against God that anyone who was not a priest would go into the temple. Now, that's according to the Old Testament. I mean, the, the Bible tells us about that. Only the priests were allowed to go into the temple. And yet, at the time of Jesus, there was hardly any priest that did go into the temple that actually represented God. And that's because the priesthood at that time had become so corrupted. For over 400 years, it was down a steadily, it was steadily declining from what God intended for it to be. So the, so the priesthood was corrupted. And especially the office of the high priest had been corrupted. At this particular time, Rome had taken the responsibility of appointing the man who was the high priest. Now, that's the problem that we find with verse number 12. The corrupted priesthood had perverted the sacrificial system, and they were cheating people by selling animals for sacrifice at exorbitant prices. They were the one that controlled checking out animals to see if they were proper to be sacrificed. And so what they did, if you didn't buy a sacrificial animal from them, from their official sellers that were at the temple, then your sacrifice was rejected. And so what they did then was they just jacked up the prices of sacrificial animals, and the temple coffers were just burgeoning with this ill-gotten wealth where the priest had cheated the people. Now that's where Jesus was. He was in the court of the Gentiles, not in the temple itself, but in the court of the Gentiles, an outlying 
place of the temple grounds. And Jesus went there, and with righteous anger, he turned over the tables of the places where they were selling the animals. He turned over all of that, uh, all of the uh, the money changers' tables. These, these are the representatives of the priests who were robbing the people. Next, we saw and talked about the purifying of the temple. This is the starting place to do it. He went into the outer courtyard because that's where you could see the pollution of the temple taking its visible form. Now, unless Jesus had intended to destroy the whole system by just obliterating it all, this is where he would go. This is where he would be. This would have to be the starting place. He would go there to cleanse the temple in a symbolic way. And the symbolism was all that he was after at this point because soon enough that entire structure of the temple and the whole Jewish sacrificial system and everything that they were doing there would come crashing down. And so Jesus didn't intend to tear down the temple and then head straight for the cross. Rome was going to do that for him and Israel would be punished. Their punishment for their rejection of him as the Messiah is that their beloved temple and the city walls of Jerusalem were all torn down. And when Jesus comes again, when he comes as the great high priest and the Messiah of his people, there will be a new temple that is built. And then all people will be welcome to come and worship him in the holiness that God requires. So that's just a little bit of a synopsis of that first message. And if you want to know more details about it, if you didn't get to hear that and you want to fill in the gaps, you can just get a CD or listen to it on the, on the, on the web on our, from our web page. Now, let's go on then today, and let's talk about, thirdly, the proper use of the temple. Well, what does Jesus have to say about what the temple is to be used for? Verse 13 And said unto them, Jesus said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Jesus said to those wicked religious leaders, You have taken my house and you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now I love the ways, the many ways that Jesus made it so clear exactly who he was. He left no doubt in their minds as to his identity. Now, that, that just makes it all the more curious how that there are people today who say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Now, I, I, I told you in the, in the earlier hour that on my trip down on Thanksgiving to see my daughter in, in uh, San Diego, that going up and down, I listened to six of the, of the sessions from the Strange Fire Conference and one of the things that, that is really shocking is that some of the main leaders of the charismatic movement teach that Jesus never claimed to be God. And they say that when he was here in the flesh that he actually wasn't God and he wasn't restored to being God until he was crucified on the cross and then according to their theology, he went into hell, which we don't believe, but they went in, he went into hell and there in hell he was restored to his deity. You cannot miss this in the scriptures, how many times in different ways that Jesus said that he was God. And you can imagine that Jesus calling the temple my house, that was an audaciously bold statement. Now he quoted from two places in the Old Testament, he put those together into one statement. In Isaiah 56 verse 7, God called the temple 
my house of prayer. There it says, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And then he quoted from Jeremiah 7, verse 11, which says, Is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. Now, there are two verses that actually refer to the coming kingdom age. Those are verses of prophecy, and they speak about the temple that will be built, and all people will be welcome to come there, Jews or Gentiles, and they'll find comfort as they come to talk with the Lord. Now, now let's stop there for just a minute, and let's talk about why Jesus would quote Scripture about the coming kingdom. He did because he's expressing about what a great time that it will be for people, no matter who they are, they'll be welcome to come and pray. And that's important because in this text, people, not all people, were welcome to come to pray at the temple. Now, in verse number 14, which we'll get to in just a few minutes, there it speaks about the blind and the lame, and they weren't welcome. But more particularly, the Gentiles were not truly welcome to come. Now, it is true that the place where Jesus did this, where all this was happening, is called the court of the Gentiles. It's the court of the Gentiles, and so Gentiles were there. But the Gentiles were not actually truly welcome there. Now, where, where did all the buying and selling take place? I mean, wouldn't it make sense that if you're going to sell sacrificial animals, that you would move it close to the place, close to the altar, where you could just get the animal, hand it off to the priest, and there it would be sacrificed? Why wouldn't you do that? Well, the reason they, reason they didn't was because all of that noise and all of the commotion and everything taking on with the buying and the selling and all these animals that are there, that would interrupt the prayers of the Jewish men. And, and they wouldn't be able to pray like they wanted to pray with all that commotion going on. And so what they did was they shoved all of that out into the court of the Gentiles where the smell and the noise and the activity that went on, all the selling, would interrupt the prayers of the Gentiles as they tried to worship God. And so the outer court was set up there for Gentile proselytes, and the Jews paid them lip service by giving them a place to come. They allowed them to come on the temple grounds, but they weren't really interested in an integrated worship. The Jews were a superior, uh, prejudiced type of people, and so a courtyard with smelly animals and noise and a bizarre-type atmosphere, that's good enough for Gentiles. That's good enough, even if they have come to worship the Lord. And do you know that that same kind of separation didn't cease for a long, long time among Jewish Christians? There was still a lot of prejudice. There was still a lot of fighting over these things, and Gentiles were treated as second-class citizens in the early days of the church. The Gentiles, in one sense of the word, were not welcome to be Christians. And yet the Word of God teaches that the walls, the barriers, all of that separation between Jews and Gentiles was broken down. And Gentiles were not to be treated as second-class citizens in the church. Now, Paul would have none of that. 
uh, he addressed this particular subject. He even went toe to toe with the with this issue uh, with uh, on this issue with Peter because Peter had slipped into old prejudicial ways. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, in your Bible to Galatians chapter two, and here we find the Apostle Paul writing to Christians in Galatia, and his purpose for uh, the Galatian letter is to vindicate his apostleship, to prove that he was truly called by God to be an apostle. And in the, in the course of doing that, he touched on this prejudice of the Jews and how that Peter had fallen back into his old ways. So there in Galatians chapter 2, at verse number 11, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Now, there's a reason that Paul brings up Peter at this particular point. He did this because he was showing that Peter was not superior to him as an apostle. Now, for all those people in Roman Catholicism who think that Peter was the first pope, here's a good chance for you to see that Paul said, Peter's not more than what I am. Peter's not, Peter doesn't add anything to my apostleship, and he actually makes that kind of statement in the second chapter as you go through it. But, but Paul touches on this idea of prejudice against Gentiles. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with Gentiles. But when they were come, that is when these Jews came from Jerusalem, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that which were the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. That means their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Now Paul is telling us there, that all the barriers have been broken down. And thank God that they have, because that means no matter what your race is, they're, they're, it doesn't matter what your nationality is, God is not, God is not a respecter of person, persons. And anyone that comes to him trusting in Jesus and Christ alone as Savior, they're welcome to come to him. But we see here in the temple, in the house that is the, the place of God, there is this distrust and there is disrespect and there's prejudice against Gentiles and they had no place of real prayer because the Jewish leaders had put them out into a flea market type of atmosphere and given that to them as their place of worship. Now let's go back to this thought of uh, that Jesus called the temple my house. There are three important purposes for the house of God. First of all, the temple was the place for the sovereign. And in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple the first time, he told the sellers, take these things hence and make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Now that time, he called the temple my father's house. And that's a very significant statement. And uh, if, if you want to have this for, for later reference to show somebody, maybe a Jehovah's Witness, that Jesus is God, you can do it with these scriptures I'm giving you now. Underline John chapter 2, 16, uh, John 2, verse number 16, where Jesus said that the temple was my father's house. So he said, my father's house. And he wasn't speaking of, his, uh, of God the Father as if Jesus 
as if he were a son of generation or a son of procreation. Now, the Gentiles, might they, they might misconstrue a statement like that because they did believe that their gods, all these different gods that they worshipped, they did believe their gods could have children. Now, if you're familiar with Greek and Roman mythology, you know there are things that are called demigods. And the demigods are people like Perseus and Hercules. These were the gods that had relations with human women, and their offspring were demigods, so they could actually have children. But the Jews, they would never think that that's what Jesus meant when he called God his father. When he said, God is my father, they knew exactly what he meant, because that was the same thing as saying that he is one with God the father, that he is the same in essence as God the father, which is actually a claim of equality to be the almighty, sovereign God. And the Jews hated that claim. This is one of the reasons they're so much against Jesus, because they thought that that was a blasphemous claim, and they wanted to stone him because he claimed to be God. Now, the temple was the place for the sovereign God, and Jesus claimed to be the rightful owner of it. He's the master of that house, which means that he is to be worshipped as God. Now, secondly, the temple was a place for the Savior. Now, in that first text, in John 2, verse number 16, he said, my father's house. But in our text, he says, my house. So if it is the father's house, and he says that it is my house, what does he mean? He means that he is equal to God. He means it is his house. It's the Savior's house Because all of the sacrifices that were made there, the multitudes of thousands of sacrifices, even actually millions of sacrifices that have been made through the years, all of those sacrifices pointed to him. They were about him. Now, especially at this time of the year, they were celebrating Passover, and all the lambs that were brought to the altar represented him. So that was a preview of the Lamb of God going to the cross. When they took that little lamb and put him on the altar, that is a preview of Jesus Christ going to the cross and giving his life for his people. Now, the Passover, of course, harkens back to the time of Moses. The children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. And as they were getting ready to leave that place, God gave them this law of the Passover. And he told them to sacrifice a lamb. And so they took that little lamb and they killed the lamb and they collected its blood and they put it into a bowl. And then they took a branch of hyssop, which is a desert plant. They took a branch of hyssop and they put it into the bowl. And then they took that hyssop and they smeared it on the top of the door and the sides of the door. And when the death angel that was to come saw that blood that was on the door, the death angel passed over that house. And of course, that's where we get the term Passover. The death angel passed over the house. That is a highly symbolic thing that was done because that blood represented the blood of Jesus Christ. And what the Bible teaches is is if that blood is not on the door of your heart, if Christ has not come into your heart and Christ dwells there, 
If, if that blood is not on your heart, then God will not pass over you. His judgment will not pass over you. You'll be left in your sins and you'll die, very frankly, and go to hell if that blood is not on your heart. You must be cleansed by faith in the blood of Jesus. And so they couldn't have done a worse thing. These priests could not have done a worse thing than to desecrate the offering of that lamb, turning it into a commercial transaction, a money-making scheme. Nothing was worse than that. And so what they had done, they had cast the symbolism of the pure blood of of the Messiah on the rubbish heap as if it didn't matter. And Jesus, as you can well imagine, was highly indignant with that. Now let me tell you something about church. Let's relate that to the church. The church is the place where we come to honor the sacrifice of Christ. We come here to honor the sacrifice of Christ. We come and we speak of what Jesus did on the cross for us. How is it that in many churches there are all sorts of activities that go on and people are as busy as bees doing what they call worship and yet there's no preaching of the cross? How do you worship God without speaking of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? I mean, the temple, that's about sacrifice, what Christ was going to do. Now we come to church and we talk about what Christ did. It's all about the sacrifice of Christ for us. Now, I'm always here, so I don't go to churches around town, but I hear about them, and I watch services on TV sometimes, and I've noticed that in many church services, the preacher never gets to the preaching of the cross. There's no gospel in it. I've seen many advertisements for churches where they talk about family, and they talk about their ball teams, and they talk about their teen centers, and their clothing drives, and their food pantries. And I'm not against all of that. Some of it's okay. But where is the cross? Now, folks, none of that is okay. None of it's okay if you go to church and you can go to a Sunday morning service and there is no message about Jesus coming to die for sinners. I mean, none of what we do matters unless somebody tells you that there is a hell that awaits and you will die and go there without Jesus Christ. And not only is that a message that is to be told, but that is the message that is to be the focus of everything that we do here. The whole reason for a Christian church is the blood of the cross. And so he should be the focus of everything. And when he is the focus of everything, there's little time for anything else. Now that's what the temple was about. It was a place for the Savior. And if you study it out, what was put into the temple and into the tabernacle, there was nothing else there. Everything from the curtains to the candlesticks to the the snuffers to the incense to the laver to the ark to the showbread, everything that was in that temple spoke about Jesus Christ. Everything pointed to him. There's nothing superfluous in the temple, and everything is about him. And so what does that tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ, about his church? What should it be? It should be a place where the focus is all on him. And so what we'd better do is stop talking about stuff that matters little to nothing at all to the eternal soul. The temple is the place for the Savior, and this temple, this place for Christians, the body of this church, Berean Baptist Church, we are a temple for the Savior. Now, thirdly, there was this purpose. The temple was a place of supplication. 
The temple was a house of prayer. This is a place to commune with God. But all of the commotion that was going on there ruined prayer, and the busyness of all the activities took away from that important purpose. And have you noticed how little prayer that there is? How little prayer that there is among God's people today? I mean, here in our church, we have one special prayer meeting a month on a Wednesday evening, just one, and we can't get about one-third of the church or even less of the church to attend that prayer meeting. And I very seriously doubt that our church members that don't come, that they spend the same amount of time at home praying and asking God for things that we ask for here and showing a little solidarity with the church. I mean, take a look around you. How do we ever expect to fill all of these pews when the people of Berean can't even take time to talk to God? Oh, the temple was a place of prayer. People prayed because they knew that they were in touch with the living God. Why wouldn't you pray when you know that you can talk to the living God? Now, it's kind of strange that we say that we have a church, that our purpose here is to glorify God, and we can't even get people to come to talk to him. That, that seems kind of strange. You know, I was reading something about prayer a few months ago. There was a pastor who said that he started having prayer meetings in, in his church once a month or on Wednesday evenings. I mean, real prayer meetings where people, not, not the preaching, but the, just the prayer meeting where people would come and pray together and the church just exploded with growth. That's what it's going to take. Maybe this is why we have so much trouble. Maybe it's why we have empty seats is because there's so little prayer in the place that is to be a place of prayer among people who are supposed to be people of prayer. Now let's look at that 14th verse. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now there is another group that the priest did not want at the temple. They didn't want to see all the sick people there. To them, sickness represented sin. And so blindness, lameness, deafness, all of that is because of sin. And here are these holy, pious priests. They don't want sinners to come. Now, do you remember how in John chapter 9 that there was a man who was born blind and Jesus healed him? And the religious leaders were curious about that. And, of course, they were trying to get rid of Jesus. And they asked this man how how that he got healed. But one of the things they said, they said, who sinned that this man was born blind? And remember that Jesus said, nobody sinned, but this man was born blind so that God could show his power in him. Now that's the way that God worked many times during that first century when Jesus was here. The healings that he did was to show God's power in these people that were sick and had all of these problems. But the priests didn't want those kind of people at the temple. But who was it that was always following Jesus everywhere that he went? The worst cases were following Jesus around because he was the only hope for them. And let me ask you, why is it that we come to Jesus Christ now? It's because there is no hope anyplace else. There is no one else to go to. You know, as Peter told the Lord, who else can we go to? You're the one who has the words of life. So we must come to Jesus Christ. There is no hope anyplace else. And yet we have people in the church that don't want 
the down and outers. They don't want people with problems. They don't want the poor. They don't want broken families. Why is it that they don't want them? Because they have never seen themselves seriously broken. They've never actually realized that they're sinners. And without the grace of God, who knows where they would be? How awful their situation would be. But they never saw themselves that way. How undeserving that they were. Now, here's the real shocker, though, about people at the temple. The worst ones that were there were not the tax collectors, and the worst ones were not the prostitutes. The worst ones were not all of these down-and-outers. The worst people at the temple, actually the very worst ones, were the priests. They were these self-righteous priests who tried to turn away hurting, broken-down people. They just passed by them on the other side. They turned it into a den of thieves. And so while they put on their holy garments and they tied their phylacteries to their, to their arms and they put the scriptures in leather boxes and tied them to their foreheads to look holy, here they are rejecting people who need help. And that same kind of vain worship goes on today. It's hypocritical and it's self-righteous. So the worst were the priests who claimed that they were speaking for God, but they had turned the temple into a den of thieves and they couldn't see the wickedness in their own cold, dead, lifeless hearts. That happens so much in churches today. It's still going on. The worst one in the church, many churches, is the preacher. Don't talk about the congregation. Talk about that guy in the pulpit because of the lies he tells and the promises that he makes and the things that he attributes to God that are not actually words that God said. Those are the worst that are in the church. So this is what Jesus came to do. He came to fix this polluted temple. It needed to be purified because it lost its purpose. And Jesus, at this point, came to show by example what would happen to that temple. Now, when he comes again, the temple will be made right, and all people will be welcome to come and speak with him. Now, let's take one last observation from the text. Fourthly is the praise of the temple. Verse 15, And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased, and said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. So what could be worse than this? The chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful works that Jesus did, and they were sore displeased. Now, that word sore is not a word that we use often today in this kind of context. Here it means that they were highly indignant, that they were grieved about this because it upset them so badly. Now, can you imagine anyone being so heartless and cruel that when people that had no hope were given hope, they were displeased? They were sore displeased, the scripture says, when the blind could see, when the lame could walk, when the deaf could hear, when all kinds of diseases that ruined people's lives were, 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 people were healed from those things. The leaders were sore displeased that Jesus had done it. And then look at this. Do you know the thing that really irked them about what was going on then? It was those children in the temple that were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, the word children there actually means young boys. So these are probably youngsters that had come to the temple for their rite of passage, their bar mitzvah, and so they were there to receive the blessing of the priests. But the children were more blessed by seeing Jesus. 
They'd heard the crowds the day before saying, Hosanna. And they picked up on that theme and they celebrated Christ. And the priest couldn't stand that because these boys were supposed to be there to see them. They're the great priests of God. Now, the day before, the cheering had stopped. And I think those priests were thinking, wow, at least that part of it's over. We don't have to deal with that anymore. And now here they are, right in their own backyard, and these children that have come for the rite of passage in the Jewish religion, they're standing there praising Jesus and, and, and saying, Hosanna to the Son of God. And those priests were so indignant about that. They said, Jesus, don't you hear this? Don't you see what's going on? Why don't you stop them? But Jesus didn't stop them. He shut off these wicked priests and Pharisees and shamed them. And he said, haven't you read? And I really like that part because Jesus knew how to hit them hard. How many times has he asked these questions, this question to these people? Haven't you read? Back in chapter 12 when, when Jesus and his disciples had picked the heads of wheat out of the field on the Sabbath, they complained about that. And Jesus said to them, haven't you read? Haven't you read in the Old Testament about how David did that? In chapter 19, they were all messed up about divorce. And Jesus said to them, haven't you read? And then in chapter 22, he'll come back once again and he'll be very specific with them when, they, when they're just completely wrong about the resurrection. And Jesus will say to them, you don't know anything. You don't know the scriptures. And every time that he said that, that was a slam against them because if there was anything that they were prideful of, it was their knowledge of the scriptures. They wanted people to come to them for the interpretation of Scripture. But Jesus shut all of that down. He shut their false knowledge down. And so in a flash, just pulling the Scriptures out of his head and knowing what every Scripture was intended for, he quoted from Psalm chapter 8. And he says, haven't you read that? Why did he say that? Why does he say, haven't you read it? You know why... Christ is always asking the question, haven't you read the scriptures? Why does he ask it? Because that's the only place that you can go to find your knowledge of God. It's the only place that you can go to find out who Jesus Christ is. So you don't go to places like the History Channel and you don't go to the Discovery Channel and watch that to find out about God and to find out about Christ. Forget about that. Don't go to those people who claim that they saw God in a dream or that Jesus spoke to them last night, or God appeared to me. Don't go to those people, because the place that you always have to go is to the Word of God. That's his revelation of himself. You can't get it any place else. Now, the same day that I was working on this sermon, uh, I got an advertisement in an email from Tyndale Publishers, and this advertisement was about a, a, about a fellow, that a doctor who claimed that he had heaven opened up to him when he was treating a dying patient. And there was an endorsement for that book from another doctor who said that she had actually been to heaven. And I said to myself, wow, here is... Tyndale publishers using the name of that great man, William Tyndale, who helped to give us the Bible in English, would Tyndale defer to a wild, unverified vision that somebody had instead of the Word of God? Don't waste your time on that stuff. Don't go to the bookstore and pick up books about people that said that they've been to heaven and came back and all those kinds of things. That's as foolish and as against God as it can possibly be. When you want to find out who Jesus is, who God is, go to the Holy Scriptures. It's the only place that you're going to find him. So Jesus said then, out of the mouth 
of babes. Listen to your children when they come out of Sunday school, when they come out of the Pioneer Club. You know, the other day I saw Christian Enriquez coming, leaving the church with a thing on his head, and I said, what is that? And he said, it's a squid. And I had no idea what that was about, but somehow that related to a lesson that they were giving in one of those classes, and I know that they were talking about Jesus. Listen to your kids on the way home after they've been to church and Sunday school. Listen to the songs that they sing about Jesus. I was talking to Aiden the other day, and I was asking him, you know, he's five years old. I asked him, how do you like your new school? And his only complaint was, they don't sing enough songs about Jesus. Out of the mouth of babes, thou hast perfected praise. You know, children have much less trouble praising God than do adults. They don't have a whole lot of trouble praising God, and yet there are parents who shut up their children in their praise because they won't bring them to Sunday school. Uh, they, they, they leave them at home or whatever. They don't bring them to church where they can learn about Jesus. Now, finally, let's look at the last verse. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. And he left them. What a sad commentary that is. They didn't want Jesus to stay, and so he left them. There was no room for Jesus in his own house. There was no room in the city of Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God. They didn't want him, and so he left them. And they were glad to see him go. Sounds a lot like churches today. People are glad to see Jesus go. There are Christian churches with no Christ. There are Christian churches where Jesus is just an afterthought or no thought at all. And here is Jesus, just like Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is left on the outside of the church and nobody wants him to come in. And we're not long till Christmas and people will say, you know, we ought not to take Christ out of Christmas. And people get worried about that, taking Christ out of Christmas. That's not our biggest concern. Our biggest concern is taking Christ out of Christianity. Because you have churches with no Bible, with no blood, with no holiness, with no sacrifice, with no love, with no devotion. In other words, there is no Christ in those churches. And here's the thing about it, folks. God will not live in that house. You don't go to that kind of a place to find God because God is not there. God's been left out a long time ago. God is not there. And the question for us is this. Is God here? Is God living among us? And we need to know this because one of these days, Jesus is coming to clean house. And you can take that to the bank. He is coming to clean house. He's going to clean up a few of the things that are going on, a lot of the things are going on, and he's going to make it right. In your own heart, you need to know this. Does Jesus live there? Does God live there in your heart? Has the blood been applied to your heart? Do you know him? That's the most important question facing you today. Jesus is coming back, and he's not going to live in a dirty house. It must be one cleansed by his blood. Do you know Jesus? Is he in your heart? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great text that we've looked at today. Our exposition, we know, is sometimes meager, and maybe we don't get to everything that needs to be said. I'm sure that we don't. 
But, Lord, we do pray that your word has been opened up and Jesus has been shown and that people very clearly understand that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We can go no place else but to you because there is no hope any other place. I do pray that you would speak to hearts today, uh, speak to those that are lost, help them to understand that there is a day of reckoning coming. There's a day when every person will stand before God and he'll examine the heart and he knows whether the blood has been applied there. Lord, we just pray that people will trust you today. For Christians, I ask you that we might be very, very concerned about this issue of worship. Are we worshiping you correctly? Are we doing what you've told us to do? Do we have a holy life outside of this place so that we do come here that we can know that our efforts to worship are being honored by you? Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be what you would have us to be. We pray that you would live in Berean Baptist Church, live in the hearts of your people here. Bless us as we sing. Draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.